Good morning. Uh, I appreciated Rush's prayer, and I don't think he knew what my lesson was going to be on this morning, but he did such a tremendous job in helping us to prepare for the lesson uh, by pointing out that we are indeed to be different. And because the grace that God has extended to us, we are to live the exceeding life. Uh, we're to live differently from those who are not children of God. And so this morning, I want to talk about what I am calling the toughest command. Uh, for many years now, I have preached and taught stating that I believe the most difficult command that Jesus gives us is to return good for evil. And in the heat, in the heat of the moment, when we are emotional, when we have been mistreated, when things are not going our way, to do what Jesus tells us to do here in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 38 to 48, is extremely difficult. And I want you to read with me and look closely at what Jesus tells us to do as we go through this reading that is at the end of the first chapter of Matthew 5 within the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect or complete, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, most of us have heard this passage taught on such that we recognize that phrase when Jesus says, in essence, if the Romans ask you or compel you to walk a mile, then go with them too. Understanding that the Roman law allowed for the Romans to make excuses saying to the Jews that they were involved in a governmental affair of some type and because of that they could call upon the Jew and ask them to go with them a mile and help them to carry their load. And the Romans of course took advantage of this. If the Roman were to come up to a Jew and say, I've been to the market, I need you to help me carry my purchases home, the Jew, if he or she were brave, might say, how does this have anything to do with the government? And the Roman might respond by saying, well, I'm preparing a meal, and if one of the government officials 
stops in to eat with us, then I'm preparing food for him. And by the way, you don't want to challenge the Roman government. If you were a Jew, how would that make you feel? Jesus said, if a Roman comes to take advantage of you and tells you to go with him a mile, go with him too. If you heard that for the first time, how would it make you feel? I remember so well on 9-11 when at Freed Hardman we were trying to decide how to handle the events of the day for especially our 1030 chapel session that day and as we were planning how to deal with that we put together the the different program then had been planned and I remember as Billy Smith led that opening prayer on 9-11 he prayed for the ones who were responsible for the terrorism and I remember sitting on stage that day thinking I'm not sure that I want to pray that because as most of us remember where we were and what we were going through that day we at that point at 10:30 in the morning were very unsure of what was going on and what was going to happen next we didn't know at 10:30 that morning if the bombings and the crashes and the murders were over or if they yet were to continue and as difficult as that was for us to pray, that's what Jesus asked us to do. I want us to look at several examples this morning, four examples this morning of those who indeed returned good for evil. We can start with the story of Joseph. And in Genesis chapter 50, and in fact, if you have your Bibles open, you might want to turn back to verse or to chapter 45 where Jacob sends Joseph to go check on his brothers, and of course the, the next to the youngest brother comes with his coat of many colors, and the brothers are envious of him based on the way their father has treated him, giving special treatment, and so here comes the dreamer. And as we get to chapter 50 in verse 18, we read that Joseph's brothers came and threw themselves down before him. <coughs> They said, we are your slaves. And by the time we get to chapter 50, they have come back to Egypt to get food. They have learned that Joseph, the second in command under only the king, has so much authority and so many resources. And he has taken care of them and told them to go and get their father and their families and return so that they will be taken care of. And after they return home, or after they return to Egypt with their father, their father, Jacob, soon dies. And they think the only reason he was nice to us is because our father was alive and now that he is gone, they will, he will seek revenge. We are in trouble. And so they decide to come and make the first move and plead for themselves and say, we are your slaves. We will do whatever. Just please do not take our lives. But Joseph said to them in verse 19, do not be afraid. Is it my place to take the place of God? And look at verse 20. You intended harm for me, but God intended good. 
to accomplish things that now are being done, and in fact, the saving of many lives. So don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Now, if we had time, we could go back and talk about the years between them selling him to the Ishmaelites and this moment in time when he had to go through the years in prison and the false accusations and the hard times. Why? Because they sold him to the Ishmaelites. But look at the second example, King David, when, or David, who actually had been anointed king at this time but was not really serving as king. King Saul was still serving, and because of his increased jealousy, he sought to kill David. And look at this passage in 1 Samuel 24, verses 4 to 7. And the situation is such that Saul has taken 3,000 men to kill David because of his jealousy. And as they are out seeking the shepherd boy who now has grown and is to be the next king, David, Saul, as the Bible says, goes into the cave to relieve himself, not knowing that David and his men are deeper in the cave running from King Saul. And so they have the upper hand. Saul is by himself. The men said to David, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Because now Saul is there by himself. They have him largely outnumbered. David crept up unnoticed. Saul was asleep. They cut off a corner of Saul's robes. He does. But afterwards, doing even such a minor thing as taking a remnant of King Saul's robe, David was conscience-stricken. For having cut off a corner of his robe, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words... David sharply rebuked his men for encouraging him to take the life of King Saul and did not allow them to attack Saul. Saul left the cave, not knowing what had happened, and went on his way. But skip on down to verse 11 and notice the interaction between the two a few moments later. David says to King Saul at a distance, My father, look. At this piece of your robe in my hand, I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. See, there is nothing in my hand to indicate I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. Now, I want to stop here for a minute and ask us to notice David's feeling because David is thinking the same thing we think when others mistreat us. I don't deserve this. I've not done anything anything wrong. Why is this happening to me? There's nothing in my hand to indicate I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. And then he says, May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, From evildoers come evil deeds. 
so my hand will not touch you. Now I underlined that old saying as the NIV states because where I'm going in this lesson basically is to remind us that we've got a responsibility to not do what our nature tells us to do. And it may be that the phrase that we put in our minds is this, from evildoers come evil deeds. As our cue to show discipline. But let's jump on down to verse 16. What's Saul's reaction? When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And then Saul weeps. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Because King Saul, even earlier in the day, who was seeking to kill David, is now praising him for his sparing his life and returning good for evil. Look at example number three, the story of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And Stephen had given his history of Israel before the Sanhedrin. And a great sermon that was, and he stirs up the Sanhedrin. And when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, on the other hand, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The only time in the scripture we see Jesus standing beside God's throne. Look, Stephen says, I see heaven and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him, and they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Now, I want you to get beyond the familiarity of the story of Stephen being stoned, and I want you to think of what it would be like to experience what Stephen is experiencing. While they're stoning him, they lay their coats at the feet of the young Saul of Tarsus. And while they are heaving stones at Stephen, Stephen prayed, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And then he said, receive my spirit. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Now, he was full of the Holy Spirit. Had he not been, I expect his attitude, his prayer would have been different. And the fourth example that we see is the ultimate example, the example of Jesus. And Peter, who was so very close to Jesus, who on many occasions saw Jesus return good for evil, described Jesus in this way in 1 Peter 2, 21-23. He said, this is why we are called... Because Jesus suffered for us, 
leaving us an example that we should follow and do as he does, or as he did. What was the example? Well, he committed no sin, no deceit or guile was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's the example that he left for us. And I want you to notice this passage and to save time. I won't read it, glance through it, but this story of Jesus the night before the crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke is the gospel author who gives more detail. And when Judas leads the Romans to arrest Jesus, some of the disciples and the apostles ask Jesus, and you look especially at John's account, you see more of the detail, but they ask Jesus, should we draw our swords? And apparently before Jesus has the opportunity to answer, the impulsive Peter pulls his sword and he swings at Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Now, I don't think Malchus walked up to arrest Jesus with his head cocked to the side. But I believe when Peter swung his sword, Malchus did what any of us would attempt to do and duck trying to save his head. And he almost does successfully. Peter cuts off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Jesus says, put up your sword, Peter. I'm not here to fight. They have come to arrest me. I will go willingly. And then he reaches down on the ground. I'm reading a little into it. He reaches and picks up the ear of Malchus and he puts it on the side of his head and he heals him. My question is this. Do you think Malchus became a believer that day? To what degree do you think blood was flowing from the head of Malchus? What happens when we cut our head? What happens when your ear is severed? Pretty big wound, right? I expect on that occasion, because Jesus returned good for evil, Malchus, the servant of the high priest, became a believer. Can you imagine how many times for the rest of his life Malchus was asked, is it true? Did it happen? Was there a scar? Or did Jesus heal that too? I expect Malchus went from the front of the line to the end of the line of those having come to arrest Jesus. Why? Because Jesus returned good for evil. And of course, this passage that we're so familiar with, the ultimate example, while Jesus was hanging between the two thieves, he didn't want to go through it. He begged God to not make him. God denied his request three times at least. And as he hung on the cross, he had the wherewithal to look up to the Father who had turned his head because he could not watch. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
returning good for evil. We not only have examples, there are many other places in the New Testament that teach the concept of returning good for evil. In Romans 12, Paul gave a list of things we should be involved in as we are living the Christian life. And he says love should be sincere, hate evil, cling to good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And if we stopped there, we would go, oh yeah, those are things that we try to do. But then he says, in the middle of that, and bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. That one's easy. Mourn with those who mourn. That's pretty easy. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited, but then he comes back to it. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as it relies on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, saith the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Coming back to Peter, again, who had the ultimate example so close to him, Peter says, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil for evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. First Thessalonians 5, Paul again says, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and everyone else. Now I want to tell you, it's pretty easy to stand here and talk about returning good for evil. Why? Well, I had a good morning. Nobody's been mean to this, me this morning. I haven't had the first thing go wrong other than a little bit of anxiety with preaching. But it's not always like that. In the summer of 1989, Tina and I had just moved from Mobile to Dyer. John and Adrian were living in Dyer at the time. And it was vacation Bible school week. And before we had left Mobile, I ordered an IBM clone computer. Now, some of you are old enough to know what I'm talking about. Back when you couldn't afford a true IBM, you would, have, you would buy the IBM clone that would be a kind of generic parts put together. That computer cost me $1,300. That was a lot of money, still is, but especially in 1989. And so I had one of my students at Faulkner University to order it, to make sure it was what I wanted. It came to him, he added some more RAM to it and brought it to me. And it was great except for two or three little things that didn't work well. And so I went to him and I said, uh, what's the warranty? He said, oh, 
they'll take care of it. He said, bring it to me and I'll send it back. And I said, how long is this going to take? And so I brought the computer back. I gave it to him. He sent it to Signal Hill, California. I will never forget Signal Hill, California. Why? Because it stayed at Signal Hill, California and stayed and stayed and stayed. And so after a few weeks, after we had moved and I had settled, I began calling. Hey, I sent my computer in. You have it. Uh, can you give me the status? Well, we're working on it. Two weeks later, we're working on it. Two weeks later, we're working on it. This went on and on and on. So finally, I start calling saying, look, I need my computer back. This has been long enough. What's the status? Just tell me what's going on. And they would give me the runaround. And so I continued to call. Finally, during vacation Bible school week, California, two hours ahead, ten minutes before vacation Bible school, I get somebody on the phone, and the man says to me, at two minutes before seven, Mr. England, we don't want you as our customer anymore. <laughs> we are no longer going to talk to you on the phone. We no longer will do business with you. And he hangs up. And I have to go in and say, welcome to Vacation Bible School. <laughs> I was so mad. Had I been anywhere near Signal Hill, California, I would have gotten in my car, told the elders I'll see them the next night, and I would have driven to that place, and, and I have no idea. Weeks and weeks of that had built up. Now, I share that story, and I won't tell you the rest of the story, how I got it back. I did get my computer back. But I tell you that story because that stuff is real. Those types of things, while that's a little extreme, those types of things happen to us. I'll also be real with you and admit I did not pray for that computer company that night. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is that's what Jesus tells me to do. And Jesus says our religion is to be an exceeding religion. And my point in telling the story and my point in this point of the lesson is to say, look, Sunday of Thanksgiving week, while things are going pretty well, it's pretty easy to say, yeah, we're to return good for evil. But in the heat of the moment, it is very difficult. Why is it so difficult? First of all, first thought that comes out of our mind usually is it's not fair. It's simply not fair. The second thing is, we don't deserve it. I didn't deserve that. I paid good money for that computer. Oftentimes, for most of us, returning good for evil goes against our nature. Or there are some personality types that are just forgiving by nature. But for most of us, when we have been wronged, it is not our impulse to be nice back to them. Why is that so difficult? I don't know of anybody who likes being taken advantage of. But why is it important? First of all, I don't want to go through life expecting fair. 
I especially don't want to go through life into eternity expecting what's fair. And besides, if I have to have fair to be happy, I'm going to be miserable most of the time. Why? Well, because life is full of unfair. And if we figure that out, and if we expect it and learn how to deal with it, then we can have peace. If we don't, we're going to be miserable people. I also want to say at this point it's very important for us to teach this concept to our children. If we try to fix everything for them, if we try to cover everything for them, if we try for them never to be taken advantage of, then what's going to happen when they become adults and it happens to them maybe on a daily basis? They don't know how to accept it. They don't know how to deal with it. They think, what's wrong? They're not accustomed to it. Why is it so important? As we have seen, vengeance is God's. And I want also to ask you to think of what life would be like if I and you had the responsibility of going through life making sure we appropriately take vengeance out on those who do us wrong. What kind of life would that be? That wouldn't be very pleasant, would it? No, it wouldn't. And what if we don't do it appropriately? What if the level of of taking vengeance out is up or down? I don't want that. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And look at this one. Why is it important? Because I believe the Bible teaches that the degree with which we forgive others is the degree of forgiveness that we will receive. From the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer in Matthew 6, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. And if you forgive not other people, then your Heavenly Father will not forgive you. And there's nothing in this passage that says, and only if they repent. The degree, I believe, and I may be taking liberty here, but I think it's not liberty. I think we can take this from the text. The degree of grace and forgiveness that God extends to me will be based, at least in part, on the degree that I extend to others. Does that make sense? I'm going to tell you, I need every bit I can get. And we all do. Therefore, it's important to return good for evil. Why is it so important? Well, ultimately, because if we don't return good for evil, God will not call us his children. Going back to our text, specifically verse 45, why do we return good for evil? The ultimate reason that we may be called the children of our Father which is in heaven. This indeed should catch our attention. If we're going to be children of God, we have to practice returning good for evil. And I've put mom's translation in as we bring our thoughts to a close. Because we, most of us, heard it over and over and over growing up. And have said it, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What better way to be like Jesus 
and to have the mind of Christ, Philippians 2 and verse 5, than to return good for evil. It is indeed, to me, the toughest thing that Jesus asked us to do. But oh, how very important as we live the exceeding life of Christianity, showing that we indeed are different from those from the world. May we practice that, and may we ask God to help us. This morning we offer the invitation. We encourage those who have not yet put on Christ to put on Christ in baptism, repenting of your sins, confessing Jesus to be the Son of God, and becoming a child of God, and live the exceeding life. And if you need to ask for prayers, this church, this family is a loving family and loves to pray for one another and would love to pray for you. If you need to come, we encourage you to do so at this time. While together we stand.